It's Monday, October 16th, which means we are re-releasing our final two episodes from our series, Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children. This program originally aired back in 2020 and was sponsored by funding from Pfizer. Hello and welcome to the first town hall on systemic therapies for atopic dermatitis in children. Today's episode is our first AD town hall. You'll hear from distinguished faculty in pediatric dermatology and allergy immunology, answer questions about new and emerging treatments, and important research issues for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children. Our special guests today are Dr. Emma Gutman-Yasky and Dr. Eric Simpson. So uh, I'm Larry Eichenfield um, from UCSD. I'm a professor of dermatology and peds. Um, and vice chair of the Department of Dermatology. And uh, staying with UCSD, I'm gonna flip over. Bob, you wanna introduce yourself? Everyone, I'm Bob Gang. I am assistant professor in uh, medicine and pediatrics in the divisions of adult and pediatric allergy immunology at UCSD. Larry and I actually co-direct a multidisciplinary topic dermatitis program um, and uh, combined um, allergy and dermatology research fellowship program as well. Mega? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Mega Tollefson. Um, I'm a professor of peds and derm at the Mayo Clinic where I practice pediatric dermatology with Dawn. Dawn? Hi everyone. I'm Dawn Davis and I'm a professor in pediatrics and dermatology and practice peds derm at Mayo Clinic in Rochester with Mega. <laughs> and uh, we're very excited uh, tonight to have uh, uh, Emma Gutmanyaski. I'll have Emma introduce herself as well, but um, Emma, we know, is a, real, is a tremendous world leader in uh, atopic dermatitis and inflammatory skin disease and has done in incredible work at moving the field forward, really uh, uh, helping us um, uh, understand some of the immunology of the disease and um, an example of someone who's sort of lived in the adult world of atopic dermatitis and now is, encompasses lots of work done in uh, pediatrics as well. So Emma, why don't you introduce yourself formally that people know who you are. So uh, Emma Gatman, um, I'm from uh, Mount Sinai in New York City. Even though I'm not a pediatric dermatologist, I, I do see, I would say, 30 to 40 percent of my uh, patients are children. I actually love to see children. And um, somehow from all New York area, I get uh, referrals of the more severe uh, children. So I have an opportunity to, uh, to treat in, in moderate to severe children. And uh, I'm excited to uh, be here with you. Without further ado, I'm going to go up. Well, I'm going to tee off the first, uh, the first uh, uh, question. Oh, so I, and, um, I just received word. So Eric Simpson, another you know, world leader in atopic dermatitis, who uh, um, uh, is going to be joining us once he finishes clinic, which is running late. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> I have no idea what he's talking about. That never happens to me. <laughs> Um, so, Emma, I'm going to ask you the first question, which is, um, so, you know, you did some work um, uh, collaborating with, uh, with Amy Power and many other people who really uh, did, did work in the lab and collecting information, looking at some of the, the immunologic differences that might be seen in, in children. So, um, and you're someone who's highly versed in the data on our approved biologic dupilumab and the IL-13s that are coming and IL-31 and the oral jacks and the OX-40s. So the, I guess the question right now I'll start off with is, so from an immunologic standpoint, what's your sense of some of the differences that you've seen and does it matter right now? <laughs> Should it matter? And is, is, is the coloring of how we want to balance oral jacks, for instance, with our biologic agents, is, is that be affected by that? Or is it basically the proof of the puddings and the eating or the, the clinical studies drive our, should drive our selections? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm both a scientist and a clinician, and um, I have a scientific answer and a clinical answer. Um, from a clinical point of view, what I see in the clinic, uh, there are kind of two camps of patients. There are um, uh, the patients that uh, will not mind um, um, 
what the treatment is if they get an efficacious treatment and it doesn't matter if it's a biologic or an oral and there are patients that would not want a biologic they see the needle or the thought of the needle and they would not want it and they would want an oral medication and particularly i see that more in children and adolescents that would prefer an oral medication um, now, in terms of immune axis um, and the work we've done, I can say that all the atopic dermatitis patients, um, both children and adults, and also across different uh, ethnicities and um, other um, um, atopic dermatitis endotypes, I think the type 2 pathway or the TH2 pathway is common to all of them. But for some, uh, for some of them, uh, targeting TH2 may not be enough. And we see that very well with dupilumab, that I think it's a great first biologic, but we know that only around 30% of the patients will achieve easy 90 or clear or almost clear, around a third. So that tells us that for some patients, there are additional uh, immune axes that are uh, activated. And we've seen that in children that have higher TH17 and TH22 compared to adults. And I think uh, particularly in children, there might be a benefit uh, in targeting other additional immune axis in addition to the type two immune axis. Anyone want to ask a follow-up question? Emma, this is Dawn. Can I ask a follow-up question with regards to some patients having probably an additional immune access that's driving their disease? Any demographic factors that those people share, like having a certain age group or a gender or an ethnicity or perhaps another atopic disease like asthma or food allergies? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So, you know, a with Amy, we, we studied the, the very early onset atopic dermatitis in children that are younger than five, and actually the majority were younger than two. And surprisingly, we saw that that age group had a phenotype that was in, in skin tissues and also in blood, but mostly in skin tissues, a, somewhere in between psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, was, they had very high TH2 activation, but they also had quite high TH17 and TH22 activation. And that brings me to think that for some of them, it may not be enough to just give them anti-TH2. You, you may need to block other axes, particularly when severe. With that being said, dupilumab indirectly does target TH17 and TH22. So we need to remember that as well. So Winnis Thomas joined us. Winnis, you want to say hello, introduce yourself, and I have a question that hasn't been asked yet. I have a question about how often you face uh, kids who need higher than the now currently FDA approved dose because we did the long-term studies and it obviously had cutoffs by 60 kilos, 30 to 60 and not a un, you know, good percentage of kids had to back down on dose if they continue. So I guess in your experience, having seen the number of patients, how often do you find that you actually have to go off the now approved labeling? Yeah, no, I love this question, and um, I, I'm a great believer that uh, the PK studies do not always represent what the patient actually needs, because um, I, I think in general the money is in the tissue, not necessarily in blood. And um, in fact, I, I do see that children many times have more severe disease and may need actually higher dose in body weight. And I, I try to go as high as I can, or as high as the insurance will allow me. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that um, uh, just giving them whatever is allowed by, uh, you know, the body weight is what they need. Many times I saw that this is not enough and I had to give them additional samples so that um, I'm trying to go higher if I can. Do you have an estimate of what percentage, like if you were to say that you have to go higher? Large, uh, basically the the severe patients would need more. I think um, the moderate patients will do well with the FDA approved dose, but I do see that the severe patients are usually the ones that will need a higher dosing and sometimes the adult dosing. Okay, so Winnis, I think you probably, it's a loaded, not a loading dose, but a loaded question. You may want to tell your experiences, but first let me uh, welcome uh, Eric uh, Simpson. Eric, you want to introduce yourself to the crowd? I already told them that you're famous and important. <laughs> yeah, sorry, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric Simpson. I'm a professor of dermatology in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I still have a resident that I'm supposed to be supervising in clinic right now, and so I might have to pop out just for like 30 seconds, uh, but thank you for uh, letting me be a part of this like prestigious team. I appreciate it. No, actually, before we get that, so when it's yeah. your sense that that you think you'd like escalating doses in some of your patients because 
the yeah, I mean, I, I think, when, you know, having done the long-term studies, which are ongoing, you know, your, your 30 to 60 kilo patients are improved now at 300 every four weeks, which is nice in terms of the, the frequency of injections. But in the study, not infrequently, I think we had a fair number of kids who, needed, who did better with 200 Q2 weeks, which is an average of 400 every four weeks, right? But, but they don't have a choice. They either have to back, they have to back down if they're going to stay in the study and even, you know, given the approvals. But it's just, you know, I mean, I think that's the way of drugs is there's always some group that always does better. But they're going to approve the dose that works the best for the highest majority, you know. But I think it would be nice. Hopefully the data will be out there so that we could help push as needed. And I'll add, when, when you're looking at PK data, most of the time it gets presented, it gets just presented like your clinical, whether it be clear, almost clear, or right, you're getting a single line and not necessarily the scatter of it. So I think that there's so much variability in metabolism of, of drug and, and again, variability in what makes it into tissue from a lot of factors that may relate to disease as well as individual that it, it modulates. Just, Bob, you had a question as a immunology maven. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that a lot of people um, are going to have more than the T2 uh, high uh, endotype. And I think that I mean, even in our patients who have a lot of other allergic comorbidities, um, we are starting to see that, I mean, these are some of the people who we expect should be slam dunks for dupilumab. And they are either having very modest responses or some of them are having just like Larry and I just saw one in clinic last week who had um, almost no response and uh, and even went backwards and ended up with a, a, a psoriaform rash um, on top of uh, not improving uh, atopic dermatitis. So one of the questions is, I mean, so even in some of the really high T2 signature patients, they may have alternative pathways are happening in parallel. What has your experience been in uh, trying to use combination therapy and blocking IL-17 and, um, um, and blocking um, uh, IL-4 and 13 simultaneously or using um, uh, the JAK inhibitors plus uh, dupilumab and combination therapies for some of these modest responders, mild responders and non-responders? So um, I, I did not try IL-17 combination, but I have a, a fair number of patients that um, I, I could not control um, on a dupilumab alone. And then um, I, I was considering either to put them on a JAK inhibitors, which I did for some, and uh, many of them responded, or for some, um, we added a, a, and sometimes we got approval, believe it or not, a P19. Um, uh, so, and we were able actually to control some of these. And I'm talking about patients, like you mentioned, with asthma and AD or eosinophilic esophagitis and atopic dermatitis. And these are patients that were particularly severe in terms of the atopic dermatitis. And also the comorbidity was uh, quite severe. And actually they improved both of them, surprisingly, with this combination. So that's, that's great to know. And I think, I mean, when would you consider broadening the the... The, the immune blockade versus doubling down, like, I mean, either escalating the dose of, of dupixin or in one of the cases that another patient that, uh, that I share with Winnis, I mean, we end up um, putting a, a, because the patient ended up having some improvement on dupilumab, but also had asthma, we end up putting on another anti-L5 on top of it. So doubling down on the T2 versus broadening and start looking at, at, at broader coverage. Eric raises hand. Why don't you go first, Eric? <laughs> uh, I, I missed the beginning of the conversation, but it sounds like part of it is this perception, I think, that um, that the, we're not getting as robust results potentially in, in the younger age groups or more. it's a little bit uh, less, uh, more heterogeneity in the responses in the lower age. Is that is that the premise well, of the discussion? The first question was MS. Was, was directed to Emma and sort of with your experience with some of the difference in immunology, does it change your selection? And she said basically, well, you're still, a, you know, you, you do what you do. Right. But <laughs> is your perception as clinicians treating kiddos with Dupi, are you guys seeing, do you think you're seeing slightly less robust responses than you are in, in adults? Getting pretty good responses, but I think, you know, the selection is, is probably important as well, but we're getting pretty good responses, I'd say. 
my, my sister's, Bob, I, you remember the ones that fail, but the amount of people who come back with their lives being totally changed, so they're the happiest people with us and our team and everyone is, it's, it, you know, so, and, and much more so than what the adolescent doopy data comes with at 16 weeks, because with okay. use, we really, we drive them to incredible success. But then right. we have others who are the easy 55. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I'm trying to, and I don't know if it's because I don't have, see enough kids, but I, you know, part of my perception may be that there may be a few, a few more kiddos on the younger age group who don't quite get that, you know, knock it out of the park clearance, uh, you know, to your point, Bob. And then to answer your question, do, you know, I'm, I'm more of a double downer on the, uh, or I don't know if that's the right word. It's not a downer, but I would, I would double down on TH2 personally. And when you really look at the data, like from the adolescents, I mean, these are much more severe patients, I think. And I think that's just like natural, uh, naturally we're more concerned and more conservative. And so we're kind of reserving these systemics sometimes or parents are, or they don't come into the dermatologist and they had way more severe disease, higher BSA, way more comorbidities. Um, and I just feel like you're probably not dampening the type twos uh, enough um, in, the, in these patients who are getting partial responses. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I I don't know. I just, I'm not a, I don't know how much extra, I, I add methotrexate if I need a little extra boost, but I just wonder if you, if you increase the frequency of your type two blockade, you'll do better. And, um, you know, we know that, like you said, these type two biomarkers, when you have high IgE, um, high EOs, they're, they're not responding better. And the reason, and the, and you use them as biomarkers, they're not responding better. They're actually responding worse because those are really severity-based biomarkers, and they're just markers of very severe disease. Um, and so that's why you can't see, a, you can't use IgE or type two as a biomarker for dupe, because it's really, they, that's just marking really severe patients. You know, it's interesting. I mean, like, I think, I mean, I'm glad that you, um, um, that you mentioned this, because I mean, again, just like Larry said, I mean, for the, for the most part, the majority of our patients in our multidisciplinary clinic, are responding very well to to Dupi, more so in a far more robust way than the clinical trials suggested. Um, but I mean, we just happen to remember some of the ones who who don't, and and and, and some of the ones who who actually did not respond in a very spectacular way. And it's interesting you mentioned sort of the, the kind of the, the degree of severity or of of type two inflammation because we have people who we had somebody who has EOE, asthma, allergic rhinitis, food allergy, and severe AD. And that was the person who responded the best, really achieved. I mean, it was complete resolution. That's the one that, that Larry and I are gonna bring in to do wow. to be our poster child. Yet we have other people just like her who I mean who who may have only had two or three comorbidities that don't respond as well. So so that's the I mean that's the question. And of course the one that we we saw uh, last week who ended up with a psoriaform um, rash that newly developed and never had a history of psoriasis. And that's when, I mean, I'm starting to say, you know, I mean, like, do we need to branch out and add in a jack inhibitor on top of Dupixin or, or start looking at, at other um, mechanisms? There is no no right and wrong uh, here. I think uh, it's all it's all fine. At the end of the day, uh, we'll have a discussion with the patient. We need to remember also when you double uh, on the pilumab, uh, that may be something that you'll do much more easily in an adult patient. In a child, you know, having an injection every week may not be so um, attractive to them, right? So we, I'm sure that in the future when the jacks will be available and the Piluma will be available, maybe we'll just do a combination and give you uh, pills in between so to bridge them to the next injection. I, I think it all will be a discussion with the patient in, or the child and the parents in this case. I was just gonna ask Gwyneth, you know, um, you were talking a little bit about that about you know, having an, an idea of certain kids that are probably not gonna do as well. Are you um, doing conventional dosing off the bat with them or are, are there any situations or scenarios where you're, where you're initiating higher dosing or more frequent dosing off the bat? No, I'm initiating at approved doses because it's very hard otherwise, but I do find like 
I'm not surprised. Like, I guess, like, if I'm seeing them and they're like 50 kilos, right? I, I have like my sense I may need to get them to the adult 300, you know, the over 60 kilo dose. Like I said, the, the ones that I do find are the younger kids who, like I said, in the trials, they did do better on Q2 weeks, but it is hard. I had another one earlier where it's going to be a scream every two weeks versus a scream every month to do the injection and you weigh, you weigh that. So I, I don't, I do think it's still an individual thing. I think, I mean, I draw two parallels. One is, you know, with psoriasis, we still, you don't, we don't have a predictive yet, right? We still try different biologics, right? The IL-17s may do better in some, the IL-12, 13s, 20, you know, uh, 12, 23s do better in some. And so it's, the, it's still a bit of a trial. And so I do think there are individual differences. I do, do think that, I mean, we look at kids who do have some known immunodeficiencies or, you know, differences, there are different pathways as well, too. So I, I do think there, that we still have a lot to learn about what atopic dermatitis is, and it's not just one condition, which is why, just like psoriasis is not one condition, we have the number of drugs that we have, albeit we obviously are treating them much better, much faster now, even with just dupilumab and the other, you know, biologics in the pipeline that JAK inhibitors are coming soon, which is great. I and mean, it's much better than we could do before with the traditional systemic. But I think there was that too. When we used to use traditional systemics, you know, some would respond better to cyclosporin, some did better with cells, you know, cells. Right, but here's my, here's, my, here's my point on the cyclosporin that you bring up and uh, is like, Oh, is there, are they different endotype? And, you know, cyclosporin doesn't work. And it's like, I can tell you, whenever someone comes back at the five mix per kg cyclosporin and they're not responding, it's almost 100% of the time their serum level zero. Right. The absorption. And, so, and, and I think the same thing could, could um, extrapolate to dupe. I wonder, and this is for, like, you smart pediatric dermatologists to figure out is, like, is it an endotype issue or is it a metabolism tissue penetration issue? Uh, and so, and you know, like it's sexy to think about, oh, this is a different endotype and let's start mixing biologic stuff. And, or it may simply be that they're not getting serum levels. They're not, you know, something's right. happening on the metabolite. Metabolism. Well, Generon yeah. should have that data, right? They've been collecting the blood, right? Somebody just has to get them to put out the data from the trials, right? They have the serum. They should but, be able to tell us. You know, it's it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be it's going to be a fun few years uh, because we're going to be trying to figure things out. And the problem with trying to figure things out is that we'll come to conclusions individually that may be totally wrong. <laughs> because it's it's a it's, no way, Larry. No way. There's complex immunology in each person's individual. I do I do believe that there is an amplification effect that goes on in a in bad atopic dermatitis, right? Where there's just things are revved up. And the whole question of, is it, you know, do I go with a higher dose dupe or just go with dupe and give it time? Or do I, well, should I start with like two months of an oral jack and then start dupe? You know, this will be happening and we'll totally, <laughs> you know, and you'll have successes and you'll think that was really smart. And it might've been really smart or it might've been that anything you did would have gotten them better. <laughs> So I want to ask a question to, to both um, Eric and Emma. I mean, have you guys had an opportunity to put anyone on upadacidinib off-label for, I mean, to get it approved? I mean, how, how hard has it been to get, um, to get someone approved off-label to use it and someone who may have failed uh, dupilumab or, or wasn't able to tolerate it? So I, I did not have a, a, an opportunity to put a patients off-label on upadacitinib, but we have the highest number in the United States of patients on the UPA trial. We had 22 uh, patients at one site, including maybe 16 adolescents. So I had a lot of adolescents actually. Um, and, and, you know, I'm blinded, so I do not know who was on 15 and who was on 30. But one, one thing that I did see um, that um, uh, we saw many patients coming to their follow-up at two weeks, and this is very unusual for atopic dermatitis, with a starting easy scores of 50 going to zero. Yeah, we, we had similar experience with some of our, our um, adversarial patients. Again, we're blinded, but the speed of response was like, you know, the Amazing. research fellows are like, woo! Exactly. And the, the Avro data, you remember, so for those who hadn't heard the earlier webinars, so the Aprocidinib data, um, so that Upadacidinib had about, um, I think it's 16 to 20% adolescents in their, in their study. 
Uh, Abrasinitive did a whole separate team study that it's not out yet officially, but you know the word is is, is positive as well. So we're we're going to have in the Pedsturm community, we'll have significant data on on the jack utility in a population that's probably much safer to use the drugs on than some adults. So that's going to be interesting. But let me throw the question in this in this group. So what what are we going to do about females and jacks? Do we need to worry because you know they'll they'll have a pretty aggressive at least the approved so of the three oral jacks for atopic dermatitis two are approved drugs already baricitinib and euphrodisitinib and one is brand new just for atopic dermis uh, as abrasitinib but if you you look at like the the pregnancy warning for you know euphrodisitinib it's like you know it can it can be deforming and malformations have been reported. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a pretty aggressive uh, warning. So, and of course, there's this cons little concern about venous thromboembolism. So I don't know if we're gonna mandate OCPs in females. So I just wanna know how people have thought through. Yeah, so I, I think in adolescents, I would be maybe less worried than in adults, I think. And, and also in children, I'll not be so worried. But, you know, I think this is something that we'll need to talk to the patient and make sure they are not getting pregnant on the drug. But even with Dupilumab, we need to remember there was not a formal study of Dupilumab in pregnancy. So it's not that with Dupilumab, I'm going around and tell patients, oh, listen, you can get pregnant because we don't have data truthfully. So I, I don't think it's that much different. It, I mean, I, I think my recommendation to patients will be similar. Don't get pregnant while you are on the drug. Easy to say, harder to do. So <laughs> I can tell you, I, I feel I feel weird putting people on, on jack inhibitor. First of all, to answer your other question, it's really hard to get people off-label jack. Uh, Silverbrick's been able to do it. But my experience, clinical experience has been the same. It's an amazing drug. I have a couple patients on tofacitinib, and it was really, really hard to get that drug off-label. Um, so it, it just takes a whole bunch of work um, and luck. Um, but, but boy, it's so worth it uh, if, if someone's failing to pill you map. And my patients who are on the UPA study, um, or even are, no, no, on the Abro study, who failed Doopy, they've done great on Abro. Um, and, so, and so for the teens that I have, um, who I know they're now on open label. I don't know what dose, like Emma said, but they're doing amazing and they love the drug. But when they start becoming sexually active or want to be, <laughs> I put someone on OCPs, like a young woman. I put her on OCPs and, and this was not a discussion she, she was comfortable having with her parents. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a touchy situation, but I feel, feel like medically that was the best choice for her. Um, but yeah, it's I, I would prefer like, you know, condoms or IUD or something um, uh, it, to mitigate this rare risk of PE that hopefully is even lower in teens, uh, but we just don't know at this point. Don, you had a, a question you wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah, go. thank you, Larry. I was wanting to ask Emma and Eric, since they're here joining us as guests, um, we had talked in the past and I have noticed personally that um, for my patients who also have EOE, those tend to be the patients that respond best to do pilumab. And I don't know why, but it just seems to be that they have such a like light switched overnight difference. And I follow them with GI and we've been keeping them on the medicine mostly out of justification because of their gut and GI wants to keep it indefinitely. So for them, I'm okay with that at this point, but I don't know. And I think about, I don't, I don't know the answer and don't have the art to, how long do you keep the skin clear if the patient only has atopic dermatitis before you would consider stopping the drug? And I would really appreciate your advice on how you consider discontinuing. And, and I don't want to taper because I worry about antibody development. So mm -hmm. I assume that when I stop, it should be abrupt. But I would really appreciate your input on when and how you stop. So I, I actually advise patients and parents not to stop because why why mess up to success if if the patient got back their quality of life and it's safe and they don't have any a, i mean it's only you know the nuisance of injecting every two weeks or every four weeks depending on the dose you are putting them on um, I have multiple discussions of this uh, with patients and I think it's very important to explain to patients that atopic dermatitis or EOE, these are chronic diseases and there is not a quick fix. We can give them the life back by taking a medication, 
But for now, there is not a switch. I mean, in the future, maybe we'll have some in, in medications that will induce tolerance and, you know, real disease modification. Right now, we just can treat the disease in an effective and safe manner. And I tell them that they should keep going for now because I don't want to take the risk. I tell them, listen, if we stop, then like you say, uh, you, this may come back. So why? I mean, if it was a drug that had so many safety concerns, you needed to do blood work uh, very often. But I, I think when we don't have that uh, fear, I, I am not stopping or recommending to stop. So I have, I have one just tune-up question. We'll come back to the dosing. And that's the, is there evidence that Q2 week dosing of DUPI is different than Q1 week, is different than Q4 week in the development of anti-drug antibodies? Right, yeah. So that's my, that's what I was going to say is that um, you can't ignore the fact that a certain amount of kids are going to grow out of their EOE and potentially out and, and become less severe in their eczema. Um, and so I do think you have to at least theoretically think about how you're going to do this. And I think you're thinking about the right way. Um, the, fortunately, the continue study at 16 weeks, take the people who are clear, almost clear, and then re-randomize them to Q4, Q8, or Q2, stay on Q2, did not see any increase in anti-drug antibodies. Um, they did have, the, you do lose a response, but, um, but, but that, we didn't see that in that 32-week study. So I, I know theoretically in the psoriasis trial show that if you keep starting and stopping, yeah, you'll start developing ADAs, but I don't know. I, I think um, I, if I were that patient and you in terms of conversation, I think going to, if, if the skin's totally clear and their EOE symptoms are good, I mean, yeah, like Emma said, let them enjoy that for a year or two where you don't even have to worry about it. But at some point you're gonna wanna go to Q4 and I would do that for, you know, four or six months, Q6, and I would do a slow taper off. And yes, there is a theoretical risk of anti-drug antibodies, which we have not seen yet with Dupilumab. But I think with some other additional IL-13s coming out, at least you may have, and maybe, you know, the JAKs, at least you have some backup and it's not your only hope uh, at that point. But yeah, I'd mm -hmm. give it a lot of time. And then when, they, when push comes to shove, start doing a slow taper off. I think with some patients it does work. In, in, in my clinic, I see that maybe the moderate patients, uh, I, I am trying and sometimes succeeding to, um, you know, give them every three weeks, every four weeks, you know, patients start negotiating. Oh, doctor, when can I stop? When can I start uh, dialing down? You know, it's always a negotiation, right? But with the severe patients, I have to say, I have quite a lot of experience. We start doing that. And it's kind of a roller coaster. They get more severe, then uh, the drug stops working, then I need to switch them to another uh, drug. I had also that experience. So, you know. So, I think, I, so let me ask the other PD Durham. Do you guys think that the younger patients would have more tendency to burn out their disease after a few years of systemic therapy than an 18 year old? I say absolutely, but that's my bias. Yeah, so like it's funny because Larry now when you and I are talking uh, um, and with Winnis, 10 years ago, like you were convinced that azathioprine maybe had this disease modification. I was convinced that methotrexate long-term had disease right. modification, but I think it's just the disease is having disease modification with control of any yeah. type. And so yeah, possibly, no, I, but I do yeah. think the disease does go away in some. Yeah. So that's the question, right? But I do think you give them better quality of life and you probably do maybe get them sooner, right? We never know because you can't do the natural history studies mm -hmm. side by side. But I do think right. some patients do get better and you can get them off, which is why I would probably, yes, go two to three years, and, but then I am tapering. But I guess to me, what I'm trying now and I'm doing it is I'm cutting down the dose instead of reducing frequency. Only because when I try that with biologics for psoriasis, I find reduced frequency, it doesn't last longer, right? You're gonna, your half-lives is still the same. So I will, I have started to go like, if they're doing clear on like 300, then let's go to 200 Q4 weeks, but the same frequency, but a lower dose. Because to me, that lasts just as long. You're not gonna, you shouldn't, I don't think, add much more immunodeficiency versus yeah. if you go Q6 weeks, you're actually at more risk, more for flaring just because of duration before it already wears off yeah. versus well, just a lower amount over the same yeah. time. So I do have a question regarding sort of the tapering. I mean, are we considering tapering? Because if I'm looking at the burden for the patient, a lot of times they find putting on, like, I mean, like, 
uh, topical uh, regimens twice a day and putting on emollients all day long, far more onerous than giving an injection twice a month. So are we, I mean, like, again, I mean, would it be reasonable to start tapering by the time that they're able to get off all these, um, all these onerous topical regimens first? So, yeah, and let me, let me put it a different way. Are we, are we tapering because we're trying to figure out lowest effective drug or are we tapering to see if the disease has rebooted and we don't need continued systemic therapy? Yeah, that's, a, that's probably a more... Oh, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. Especially with the latter. <laughs> you think that they're much better and yeah. you don't yeah. think you necessarily need to be on it forever. Well, I, and I practice, I practice like witness where I decrease dose, not interval, because I also agree that pharmacodynamics and kinetics don't change. And I personally believe that people outgrow it because it's the disease, yeah. not that the drug modifies the course. With AIDS and thiopringe, witness showed that the, that the drug does modify the metabolism. Yeah, you know, there were changes. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, we'll never prove it. I do, I do have kids, you know, and they never looked like they were going to outgrow the disease. And now they're much better, whether it was traditional or now, like I said, with, with doobies, but, but we'll, we'll never know, right? I'm well, surprised that the pediatricians here are, keep the same dosing frequency and just reduce the dose, like uh, in terms of number of shots uh, per that, kid. That, it's like, that's, that's, that's actually was going to be my comment. I mean, I think it's actually better to, to decrease the frequency. Um, you know, I haven't gotten anyone to six yet, and, and so I guess that's the hard part. You know, what do you do when, when the effect sort of tapers off? But I think when you think about it from quality of life, it's so much better to decrease the frequency. But are you going beyond like two, four weeks? Or are you just doing it be from two weeks to four weeks? Yeah, just two to four. Yeah, so that's still within the range of it working. Correct. We're talking like Q8 weeks or something, which is yeah. beyond the range of, you know, we're Correct. getting towards where the five half-lives is going. Right, that's right. where I think is the difference. So you're, you're, you're doing it less than for their comfort, but you're still doing it within two to four weeks. But I think a lot of the perception of the shots comes from being able to see the visible needle. I think that, uh, I mean, like we've had uh, cases where, I mean, there was a patient who, uh, Larry, you can remember, who has been screaming for a long time. And it was, it was really because she saw the needle, but once the injection actually went in, she said it didn't really hurt at all. And I think that once we can actually get an auto-injector for, um, for the 200, I'm, I mean, again, I'm not convinced that, that, that really it's, it's the actual injection versus the perception and the ability to see the needle. Well, I, 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 I don't know where my nurses are, but I had to inject a four-year-old today uh, with Doopy, <laughs> and uh, he didn't care about the needle at all. He yeah, was like the, the most, fear. Amazing, uh, most amazing kid, but he did, and he was like stoic with the blood draw, but, uh, but it did burn. He did not like the brand. He didn't cry somehow, and he's still totally still, but it did burn. So I don't know if the auto-injector can make that burn not happen. I'm going to shift the questions for a second. Right, we had submitted a submitted question, which was, a, well, thank you, so to back a few steps. So the comment was sent in that um, um, this person felt that they might not be using systemics as much as others because aggressive topicals generally work. But, but one comment is that they found that if aggressive topicals didn't work, narrowband UVB didn't seem helpful in, in their hands. And did they, do they think there's something different in, in PZAD that it might not be helpful? And the other thing is that the recommendation of their adult colleagues is comprehensive patch testing before dupilumab. And, and she just found that burdensome in kids because it's many times, these are the kids who you can't get a back clear enough to do it. Do we forego that and how do we handle that? So I, I think uh, like some other people said here, um, uh, topical steroids and topicals in general is a full-time job for the patient, right? It's very cumbersome and it depends how, how much body surface area you have involved. But if you have all of the body, it's kind of like a, a bandaid. You, you patch some area, then it appears in another area. I don't think it's sustainable because we need to remember these patients also have systemic inflammation. So you really are patching it. You, you have to provide them with systemic treatment 
to really tackle uh, the source of the inflammation. Uh, and I'm also doing patch tests. And uh, first of all, uh, there is a very good paper um, uh, out there from uh, Harvard um, uh, showing that uh, you can do patch tests on the Tilumab uh, and uh, you'll still get very good data. So no need to do it before the Tilumab. You first need to provide a good relief for the patient. Uh, first of all, many times you cannot do it because the back is involved, so you cannot do it. So what I actually advise is first clear the patient. If the patient is clear, then why should you just worry about patch test? If the patient is still not clear, and we see that sometimes, the patients still have some facial rash, then you do need to think about some additional allergy, and then I will patch test on the film, no problem. Okay, and the second question, we'll see if we get unanimous uh, input on it. Um, there's, uh, this person had pressure uh, to consider, like with psoriasis, they do a biopsy before they do a, before they do a biologic for psoriasis. Does anyone do biopsies before Dupixent? Not unless the patient is on the study. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I find phototherapy to be very effective for a significant percentage of patients, and our phototherapy group will put, you know, two and three-year-olds into phototherapy and um, not all of them succeed, but a significant majority of them do. Yeah. So I think also putting together the two parts is that we, you know, we know that most patients, if you put them into aggressive therapy, aggressive topicals, we discussed this years ago, Eric and I had this discussion, you know, the equivalent of soak and smear or hospitalization, you can get even, you know, the most terrible patients incredibly better, but it's almost besides the point because the question is, those patients don't usually, the ones we're talking about who are most severe, don't maintain that. <laughs> and so it's different to be able, the real question is if you do intensive topicals where people haven't done topicals before, certainly that's bread and butter peed germ, right? It's like a patient who's like not doing well because they never really use more than 10 grams of <laughs> topical medication. And we get them to, and then if we can keep them under control, that's great. And they're not a systemic candidate at that at that point, but the others, we work our we work our way up. Another quick question, um, and I think it's probably a little different. So we we we're now getting the sense that LDH um, and TARC serum TARC. So in Japan, they use TARC levels as a as a measure as a good biomarker of active disease. IgE we know probably isn't, but it is a marker of this atopic diathesis. LDH does seem to correlate with disease activity, at least in a, in a large subset. Uh, anyone doing baseline blood work to have just sort of biomarker hand wait. or not? Yeah, I, I usually, you know, I tell patients, for example, with the pilumab, there is not blood monitoring, but, but I do tell them that it's good to have a baseline. So I do a baseline that it has IgE, LDH, I do a CRP as well, um, and CBC and differential, and you know, I, I usually don't follow up unless uh, I need to, but I like to have a baseline and just for my records. And have you seen the CRP actually drop? So I did, actually. I did. Sometimes I don't do it often, uh, but when I do, I do see the CRP drop and I do see the LDH drop and I do see um, um, also, of course, IgE drop with the pyramid, as we know. Yeah. I mean, I think IgE drops in the individual. I just don't think you can compare it across people because there's... I so completely agree. Yeah, it's not correlated, but it drops in the individual. Completely agree. Next set, of, I have some questions about uncommon adverse event experiences with Dupi. Um, so alopecia areata, and I think the literature and personal experience says yes and no, meaning I've had alopecia areata get better with dupilumab and I've had patients develop alopecia areata while on dupilumab. Emma, I know you've been doing some yeah, we, we research on AA as well. That we are now in finalizing the analysis, but I can tell you it's a positive study. It does take a long time. It's not like JAKS. So the best data was at 48 weeks. And even after the 48 weeks, we saw even better data at 60 weeks and 72. So, you know, it's, it's a drug that patients need a patience, but now we have patients that started with Totalis and Universalis, you know, that, that's very convincing and now have a full head at maybe 18 months, 24 months, and it's still there. 
And these are patients, some of them with seven years or 10 years of alopecia areata totalis and universalis. So we, we had good success. It takes time. Um, and I, I think what happens, I know that a case, one of the case reports actually was at Sinai, but I met that patient and I asked them. So what happened is the alopecia areata started exactly before or around the time they started Dupilumab. So I don't think there was causality, you know, we know that when there is inflammation, sometimes when your AD is out of control, maybe you also develop alopecia areata. So there was not really a, a, a short causality there. We reported, a, did you have any induction of AA in your patients in, or worsening? In, in the patient, so you know, the good news about a alopecia areata studies, you almost have no placebo and we had the same. Um, we did have a, have a little bit worsening only in the placebo arm, not in the dupilumab arm, but very small, not, nothing significant, but there was slight worsening. Uh, but uh, we didn't see any of the patients on uh, the dupilumab uh, drug that actually worsened. And you know, with 40 patients that started with dupilumab, it's a yeah, randomized I just, study. I had, I, we reported a case, uh, this woman was had bad AD, she never had a, a never had any hair loss, two years on dupi, and then mm -hmm. develop totalis on dupi. Wow. Um, and then- you try to up the dose because one thing um, I have to say, and that, that may be, uh, we, we try to push the dose. So our study was with weekly dosing. So one thing I would wonder if you up mm -hmm. the dose to, you know, every, because I did see when you, you kind of bring them uh, the same patient, some of them when they lost insurance or uh, later, when they started to do every other week dosing, then they started to lose hair. Mm -hmm. So I think the right dose for, for alopecia, remember we published a paper that uh, alopecia patients have more inflammation in blood. So I think they need that weekly dosing. Well, she, was this was this study? This was on alopecia areata without concurrent atopic dermatitis, or so. I, in order to get a definitive answer, uh, we did a, what I think is a good design. So we we had a uh, sixty patients, twenty on placebo, a uh, forty on drug, and we required that at least a third. We said um, a, a third or more. Uh, should have either active AD or history of AD because we know that, uh, and we had, um, I looked at the data, only six patients with active AD. So only 10% was active AD, but we did have some with history of AD. So we will we'll certainly want to know in the future what, what can we do to tell from a phenotype of AA mm -hmm. if they're, if they have atopic derm, then which is the drug of choice, Dupi versus an oral jack, is that, or, or. Um, yeah, no, I yeah. think Dupi will be a good way to go, but you need to tell the patient that it will take time. So who knows, maybe in the future we can do an induction with a jack and a maintenance with Dupi. Okay, if and then uh, uh, polyarthritis uh, or polyenthesitis has been a, I think it was a GAEDV article, we just had a team who in her second dose, it happened with, you know, with the biliumab, have other people seen, it's, it's uncommon, but you know, these things that are, that are, uh, I guess the, the Dupi clinical trials portfolio of patients is like 6,500. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so these are coming at lower rates than that. <laughs> but, um, um, any I've, seen one, I've only seen one case in all my, in all my patients of, you know, probably several hundred patients. So, but it was, uh, it was reproducible. Another question we had is um, conversion for those patients who are already on systemic therapy, and it's, this is much less common in the States than it is in Europe where cyclosporin is very commonly used and approved. Um, I know there's been some, there was a nice published article in the, in the JEADV in terms of sort of how you might reduce the dose of your present systemic while you're initiating, for instance, dupilumab. And so my first question is, do you have a sense that you'd, you'd do it slower with cyclosporin, reducing the cyclosporin than you would with methotrexate? That's question one. And then is it a different issue if you're initiating a jack? Would you feel comfortable initiating a jack on top of methotrexate or on type of cyclosporin or would you handle those differently? So, um, so I overlap two to, it depends on the dose that you're starting with on cyclosporin. Okay. You know, so I would, I would overlap you know, probably the most I've overlapped is probably three months uh, with cyclosporin and dupixin. Um, you know, if they're at a, if they're starting at a pretty high dose of cyclosporin, 
uh, you know, and sometimes you got to go longer. Sometimes you got to trickle in 50 milligrams for a little while until they're really settled on their dupilumab. Methotrexate, you probably don't need that much overlap, and the Europeans kind of make fun of me. I overlap methotrexate like one or two months, but they don't think that's necessary because it's such a slow pharmacodynamic effect of wearing off that you don't really, they don't feel like you need to overlap with methotrexate. So I, I sometimes, um, with cyclosporin, um, I, I have these patients that want to have a very quick uh, relief. Um, so I, I start, for example, a, a college applicants, or you know, sometimes they really need quick relief. So I start them uh, with some not high dose of cyclosporine, like uh, let's say 100 twice a day, and then every week I decrease uh, 50 milligrams uh, until I remove the cyclosporine, and that worked really well for me for some patients, so that you know they get that quick relief. You mean this is when you're starting dupilumab? Yeah, but only in select patients that really I need to provide yeah, very quick. Right. And it might be two weeks before you get the dupilumab approved and that kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I do the same thing. Yeah. I go a little bit higher. Eric, do you just stop the methotrexate abruptly because you don't think it's doing a lot or you you think the effect holds on? Because I guess I feel like biologics plus methotrexate combo is a pretty easy combo yeah, to continue totally together yeah, until think... biologic does well. Yeah, I think I think it's perfectly fine to, to. I think this is just the art of medicine, and and it's perfectly fine to combine methotrexate with any biologic, really. So, but I just feel like the, the, the and so I do overlap it for like a month or two. Um, you know the reason, you know, you just don't want to rebound off off something, right? When you start to pull your map, as it's getting gaining hold. So, so you overlap, Winnis? I would. I mean, I don't have that many patients transitioning from one. Well, the to European the other, point is, you don't I, need I would. to. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I usually try to overlap the two, you know, for whatever time, four to six, up to eight weeks first is my plan, right? That you people kick in and then see. Yeah. Um, and if, if anyone wants to schedule that JEADV article, is pretty nice where it separates out cyclosporine, methotrexate, zithiopram, mycophenolate, um, and, and in terms of the, what they basically do is say, you want to maintain disease control so they have sort of a schedule of when you decrease, but assessing if the disease is under control at that time as you sort of, as your new med comes uh, comes up and, uh, and into play. So well, here's a, a question. That's a trial, right, Larry? Oh, yeah. that, that was the paper I think presented at SPD too. It was it was an algorithm, but it's not a formal trial. Like, Correct. Correct, right? yeah. It's, it's a map. Back, back to the but second they, part they, of the question. Did, that's, yeah, that's great. They did report the number of patients so they had handled that way, but it wasn't a prospective uh, uh, trial. So. Here's, I'm gonna, things that bother me sometimes, okay? So I, I've spent a lot of, how many hours have I spent in my career being a cheerleader for topical corticosteroid use, right? You know, that's like, it's a, a lot of hours. Uh, there was just an article on higher rates of, of AFib in adults with protracted hospital diagnosed atopic dermatitis Am I supposed to worry that maybe it's years of, of steroid that we say, oh, it doesn't really get in the blood to worry? Is, do you think that some of the, when we start, is some of the cardiomyopathy or some of the afibrillation, do we think this might be steroid related or is this just something if you do enough, if you do enough epidemiologic studies, you'll find associations? Well, Larry, I mean, why, I mean, why would you first think about that? Maybe we should think about just like what, what Emma mentioned before, this is a lot of systemic inflammation. I mean, we see yeah. that in, over time, I mean, psoriasis is a risk factor for cardiovascular arthritis becomes a risk factor for cardiovascular disease because it's systemic inflammation. Same thing could be type two inflammation if it's severe enough that, I mean, over time, I mean, you can have impacts. I mean, we know that, I mean, there's, there's eosinophils in the heart. I mean, the, there's, uh, there's mast cells in the heart. I mean, there's there's uh, there are these uh, type two inflammation that can occur at all these tissue levels as well. So maybe it's because these patients weren't treated aggressively enough over time for their AD that's leading to this, and we're just patching them up with uh, with stuff with band aids. I completely yeah. agree, and you know we have this recent paper in Jackie in practice that shows that, um, a, and it was a sizable number of patients, 26 patients with moderate to severe disease. Um, so we, we found a, using a PET-MR, we found vascular inflammation in the aorta and the carotid. 
Um, and in fact, we sent some young patients, uh, 30 something without symptoms to uh, uh, the cardiologist. So I, I do think that having that inflammation over time, and these are all uh, patients that had disease since very early childhood, less than one year. Uh, it's not even like psoriasis. In psoriasis, uh, patients get the disease when they are like 40, right? In AD, they have it for so many years. So I think it does take an impact on the body. Yeah, I would agree completely. I think of it as a systemic pro-inflammatory disease, just like obesity is a very active metabolic constant pro-inflammatory disease, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid disease. You know, there's probably all these microscopic effects that we don't think of. I agree. Um, so Any one question I do have, I, ahead, I do have along the same lines is, should we then be starting to think about using systemics? Now we have more systemics that will be coming out and we'll understand more. Should we be going, using them earlier and going down, I mean, like, I mean, in, 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 in the threshold and, uh, and when we pull the trigger? Because if we are concerned about, um, the, pot, the potential for disease modification or systemic inflammation, I mean, the cumulative impact of that, I mean, and the fact that, I mean, doing, I mean, like, I mean, the whole thing that we tell people get that big jar of triamcinolone is a full-time job, I mean, should we be thinking about people's quality of life and impact on their lives and start systemics earlier? I completely agree with that. I, I like the idea of being a little aggressive early on to maybe prevent a manifestations later. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say at the very base level, I, patients aren't getting treated aggressively enough for just from their quality of life. So, and just from the, the skin is bad enough as it is, and their sleep is bad enough as it is, and their allergies are bad enough. And so those are, that gives you all the reason in the world that you should be treating early. Um, now, I think we have to be careful. Yes, we are all very enamored with the idea of reducing comorbidities over time, especially in the youngest people, changing the natural course over time. But we have to be careful that like, that may not be the case. Uh, and we may not, we may not alter their uh, risk factor for heart disease or for, um, you know, uh, AFib by treating early or, you know, and so I, I think psoriasis kind of went down that route and almost a little bit too strongly they're trying to kind of make psoriasis important because you, if you treat early you cure heart disease and the, i would say in, in total like the data from the psoriasis and all of joel gelfand's work it's positive but it's not like slam dunk positive um and so i, I think there you know there's reasons enough to treat early just for the disease itself yeah and i think the bigger the second big question right which really the first big question is disease modification as well as comorbidity modification with early treatment and then with differential early treatment because as we said the, the cytokines that were blocking and the cells that were mediating with our different agents are markedly different and the immunology is dynamic so there are going to be these you know the really core questions of both the ontogeny and development of early AD as well as early therapy and how it may impact. This is a huge unknown. It's not gonna be a two year study. It's gonna be a decade to start to get really important data on it. But it's really a key one that all of us live with as people who take care of kids from really a few months of life with atopic dermatitis uh, onward. So. I, you know, I agree. I'm glad you said that, Eric. I think we have to be careful about what we project on. You know, I think we have to have that data that yes, this is the risk of comorbidities. This is the risk of, you know, this is the potential benefit to disease modification if that happens early on. Um, I think it's exciting to think about, oh, we can put this, you know, toddler on this medicine and they'll never develop X, Y, Z. But we have to know that before we sign up for, um, you know, especially if we're thinking about like oral jacks, right? Like dupe is one thing, but um, when we're thinking about other medicines, we really have to be sure that we're going to help this person in the long run. I was just saying, I agree. I think it's it's for the disease for atopic German. Maybe you can do the the closer comorbidities that you know also you know temporarily the same. But I I, I think part of the issue with psoriasis is uh, is it is only what six percent of lifetime risk as opposed to hypertension, diabetes, and everything else. So right. I think in those that case, the reason you're not modifying it is because psoriasis is but a part of cardiovascular disease risk. So you're not, if you cannot change their weight, you cannot change their diet, you cannot change cholesterol, you're not totally modifying that much. 
And I'm not, I wouldn't jump the leap either for a topic Durham that you can change as much either. But I do think that maybe early on, if you're doing things from an early age and modifying everything, then you can make those changes. I mean, it depends what, what we want to try to achieve. If we want just to prevent a cardiovascular manifestations, then probably we can still do it in young adulthood. But if we want to prevent, a, I think, the atopic march, a, a, definitely you need to treat very early on so that you are uh, preventing the atopic march. And by the way, I, I now include in atopic march even alopecia areata. Um, I think we see many more patients that have both conditions together. We didn't discuss that, but I'm sure you guys see uh, kids with both conditions. Uh, and there are now uh, quite a lot of papers in, in kind of suggesting that alopecia areata may be a comorbidity of atopic dermatitis. And uh, there are uh, papers showing that with each atopic comorbidity, you increase the risk to develop alopecia areata. So I, I think, and that goes well with the fact that the pyrumabosome uh, improves in hair growth in patients with alopecia areata. So while we're on this general theme, I'd love to hear Emma and Eric's um, thoughts on our treatments and if that is relevant and impactful with regards to the cutaneous microbiome and if this is important, relevant and plays a role and the gut microbiome and if it's important, relevant and plays a role. I, I still do. I do. I still think that it's, it's still, I still think the chicken and egg argument is still out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we know our patients are colonized. Yeah, I think it is. Um, and, and it's going to be answered soon though, but you know, we know our patients are colonized with staph and overgrowth of staph correlates with, in, with severity and there's plenty of staph toxins that, you know, activate T cells, of course, and, and uh, Bob can talk to you guys a lot more about than I can. Um, and, and that, um, and the diversification of microbiome of the skin is good. Um, my, uh, bleach blasts probably don't do that, but dupilumab and IL-13 blockade definitely does that and reduces staph colonization. The question is, can you, can you go the opposite direction? So we know if you take away the inflammation, you can re-diversify and improve your microbiome into a healthy state. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest question is, can you diversify the microbiome and put the inflammation under control? That's not, we don't know that yet. Um, no. and, and there's only one way to do it is microbiome transplant. And there's a couple companies, including at San Diego, that are trying to do this. And so they're going to answer the question. Um, and maybe it does go both ways. Yeah. Uh, but right now, we definitely know inflammation can change your microbiome for better and for worse. No, I, I completely agree with this view. And I think the jury is still out. It may be just a secondary effect. That the microbiome has secondary to inflammation, and it may be that it has a primary effect. We, we still do not know, and we need the answer from the studies that are being conducted. Like from a from a standpoint of of, of, of looking at it mechanistically, I mean, if you end up with um, a dis uh, um, uh, in a dysbiotic state and having more pathogenic um, microbes on the skin, I mean that will lead to disruption of the epithelial barrier. And in, in return, you can actually set off the release of the alarmins uh, like IL-33, IL-25, TSLP, and that can potentially then, uh, then, then propagate the, 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 the type two inflammatory cascade as well. So from a mechanistic standpoint, it can make sense going the other way. And there have been some studies where they've, added um, uh, uh, LGG into, um, into infant diets, and they actually seen some improvement in, uh, in atopic dermatitis as well. So, I mean, so perhaps there's some, I mean, some, um, some ability, I think there is mechanistically, it may make some sense, and then I think there is some scan data that may show they can go a bit the other way. How, however, how much we give, and how frequently, how long we give, I think those are unanswered questions. Okay, they're, speaking of questions, well, why don't we make this, this is our last question because we're a little over time, but uh, Cindy Klotz wrote in to say, is it just, I think this is, the answer may change at different points in time, but tonight, <laughs> what's the youngest patient age you feel comfortable treating with a biologic? And do you worry about the developing immune system? Who wants I, to know, that I have no lower age range, and I'm, yeah, I'm putting, a four-year-old on a jack inhibitor, so yeah, no, the same. 
I think uh, you need to always consider the risk and the benefit. And I think we see kids that are covered all over the body and uh, they come to us with failure to thrive. And, you know, that's very detrimental to the kids. So I, I think it, you need to put it in context and definitely treat it if you, you think there is a need. I mean, I just say it's unusual before age two. They have to be pretty refractory because you can wrap, you can do stuff. It's once they start getting out of that phase. I mean, there are occasional patients who are that severe, but it's pretty occasional. So that's probably my cutoff just because I usually can get it controlled. My youngest is three. I have to say the same. I mean, usually you can get it. I don't have a younger threshold, but my youngest is two because you can usually get it under control by then. Okay, well, I think I'll take the opportunity to thank our incredible uh, panelists for uh, uh, doing this tonight, and particularly uh, uh, Emma and Eric uh, for joining the uh, PEDRA community and helping to educate us. Thank you guys so much for uh, 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 participating in this. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to doctors Larry Eichenfield, Don Davis, Bob Gang, Winnis Tom, and Mega Tolifson for providing content and answering questions. And of course, a very special thank you to Dr. Emma Gutman-Yasky and Eric Simpson for joining us. <laughs>